with it being Memorial Day weekend, I have uh, <coughs> been watching the World War II documentary called Band of Brothers. And it is, an, it is an amazing thing to think about the humility that is involved in laying down your life for a brother in arms. And I, I don't think there'd be any one of us in here who would not consider it a privilege to lay down our life for our spouse or our kids. Perhaps even though nationalism has kind of fallen on hard times, there's uh, many people and there are some ways in which it's really difficult to be proud of our country. Um, there are those that would dare to have the humility to lay down their life for their country. But to lay down your life for your enemies, people who hate God, and to sacrifice your son as an offering, as a sacrifice, as an atonement, is really an amazing thing. You know, one of the things that's certainly true in the military, but also in uh, our discipleship and following Christ, proud people don't follow orders. There's a certain humility that is involved in the Christian life. <clears throat> and so on this day, when we have the opportunity to recognize our graduates, there's a special word, I think, from, <clears throat> excuse me, from the scriptures, guys, that I think I would want to encourage you with. And, and, and it's something that is uh, not a good word, because it is a word that uh, has to do with a disease that infects every single one of us. And it's not uh, diabetes, although we have all drank plenty of sweet tea to probably qualify for that. Um, eat lots of sweets. The disease is not cancer. It's not, some, uh, it's not the Zika virus. The disease is pride. And here's the thing that's so interesting about pride. Pride is the only disease that makes everyone else sick except the person who has it. I don't know if you've ever been around a proud person, but they're, they're intolerable to be around because they're actually immune to their own pride and it gives off such a stench to everyone except for the person who is proud. They don't recognize it. And so today, <clears throat> in a repeat fashion from what Jesus taught last week that we looked at, he repeats a lesson on humility. And if um, Jesus is the master teacher and he needs to repeat himself on humility, then perhaps it's because we really indeed need to hear that message. And so today we'll be in the last half of Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at really just three vignettes, three uh, separate pictures of Jesus's ministry that are compressed together for a very particular purpose. And so we'll have three points along with these three vignettes, and we'll begin in verses 17 and 19. There's a listening guide in your bulletin. You'll also see the scriptures in the, uh, <clears throat> the teaching outline on the screen behind me. Our first point is this. Jesus, as a um, leader of his disciples, prepares his followers for his judgment, his judgment in Jerusalem as a dying Savior. And we see this very clearly in verses 17 through 19. Look at God's word with me. While going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and he said to them on the way, listen, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified and he will be resurrected on the third day. It's important for us to understand the context of what is happening. Jesus has been an itinerant preacher and healer. He's gone all over the Holy Lands uh, carrying out his mission. But specifically from chapter uh, 16 onward, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 
Jesus has taken his disciples kind of privately for some private tutoring. They have, they have been firsthand witnesses to his ministry. They have witnessed his healing. They have listened to his teaching. And now it's kind of the capstone seminar in the College of Discipleship. He is pulling them in for some personal tutoring to talk about the nature of true discipleship. And as Jesus predicts for the third of four times his, in his upcoming passion, he is letting his disciples know that the pathway to following God requires hardship. Guys, listen, there is a crown laid up for you, but there is a cross that precedes that crown. Now listen, if you had the choice of choosing between a crown or a cross, which would you choose? You'd choose the crown every time. But the pathway of discipleship that Jesus establishes for his disciples and certainly for us requires the suffering of the cross before there is the reception of the glorious crown. This is, as I've said, the third of four passion predictions. And each time in chapter 16, chapter 17, and here in, verse, in chapter 20, he adds just a little bit more to it. And specifically here, Jesus is predicting the exact circumstances that he will face when he gets to Jerusalem. Jesus, as the leader, has said, we must go to Jerusalem. And, and it's not going to be a pleasant outcome when they get there. As a matter of fact, he says that the Jewish religious authorities, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they will condemn me, but they have no ability to kill him because the power of the sword is reserved for the Roman government. So what is unique, what is added in this third prediction is what he says, uh, that the chief priests and the scribes will condemn him to death, but then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. Jesus knows before it all goes down exactly how it's going to happen, who's going to be culpable, and what the schedule of activities will be. There will be a trial that is a mockery of justice with the Jewish religious system, and then there will be a capitulation to the popular chant to free a mass murderer and to crucify Jesus instead by the Roman council. And so Jesus is saying very clearly, guys, listen, Here's the kind of leader that I am. We are going to Jerusalem just as I've said, and when we get here, here's what's going to happen. I will be condemned. I will be uh, mocked. I will be handed over. I will be flogged, and I'll be crucified. But on the third day, I'll come back again. So Jesus is modeling for us what is really a, a beautiful picture of sacrificial leadership. He is saying that he is suffering hardship, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others. And in the midst of his modeling of sacrificial leadership, the disciples, for their own part, model missing the obvious as proud disciples. Because here's what happens right after Jesus says the things that we just said that he said. Look at verses 20 through 28. We'll see this missing the obvious as proud disciples. <clears throat> verse 20 starts with a then. Then is a time-sensitive uh, word, which means after what has just preceded, then, so Jesus just gets done predicting his death and resurrection, then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons, and she knelt down before him to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. 
unbelievable, where Jesus is talking about sacrificing for others, and the chief thing on these two boys and their mom's mind is what cabinet post will they get in Jesus's, uh, you know, election regime? What 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 benefit will there be for them? So Jesus answered and said, "You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? We are able," they said to him. Now notice. Who asked the original question? Their mom did. When Jesus asks the counter question, who answers the counter question? The boys do. More on that here in a second. We are able, they told him. He responded, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it belongs to those for whom it has been prepared for by my father. Now, when the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them over and he said, guys, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them and that the men of high position exercise power over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What an incredible nine verses that immediately after Jesus talking about his impending sacrifice, his murder, that the disciples just don't get it. They are literally as dumb as the proverbial rock. There is no sympathy for, wow, Jesus, I bet you that's going to be a really difficult week for you. Man, so uh, um, you've got your, your to-do list for the week, and like the capstone on your to-do list is die for the sins of the world. Wow, man, we really, we agonized with you over that. No, they're so self-focused that these two proud and conniving young men manipulate their mom to ask a question that they don't even have the guts to ask, and they hide behind her skirt. It's pathetic. here's the thing that's interesting. What does the mom do when she comes to Jesus before she asks the question? Did you see it there? It's right there. You don't don't need to know Greek. It's right there. It says she kneeled down before him. What, What is kneeling down? Is that just an act of subservience? No. In the New Testament, that's an act of worship. So she has a high view of who Jesus is. She bows before him, but then the next words out of her mouth betray the kind of lack of just grasping who it is that she's worshiping. Here's the point. You can have a high view of Jesus and not have everything in order in your life. And so she has a high view of Jesus, but she has obviously a too high view of herself and her sons to have the audacity to tell the impending dying savior, hey, um, put my boys in your top cabinet posts. Do this for me. To have the audacity to think that Jesus is in her debt to do this favor for her, and the audacity, I know every mom believes this, that her boys deserve these posts, shows that, yeah, she has a high view of Jesus, but it's not high enough to humble her and keep her from asking this audacious question. So friend, you can have the right view of who Jesus is and still be really messed up in your life. Here's the thing about proud people. 
Proud people are so focused on themselves that they always overestimate their abilities. You ever find that guy that constantly overpromises and underdelivers? Yeah, it's not, that's not a fun place to be. He over, they overestimate their abilities. Jesus says, hey, uh, you want to be on my right and my left? Can you drink the cup? The cup refers to his destiny of suffering. Uh, he, he, he is, the cup that he is about to drink is this cup of dying for the sins of others. And he says, hey, can you drink my cup? And they go, sure. Jesus goes, no. There is no way that you, you are not capable of suffering as I am about to do as a substitute for people. Maybe you can suffer, but not as a substitute. And Jesus says, just to be really clear, okay, um, brave ones, you will indeed suffer. For James, his suffering was the martyrdom of blood. When persecution against the early church first broke out, James was the first believer to be killed. Evidently, he didn't run fast enough when persecution broke out, and uh, they caught him, cut off his head. For his brother John, the beloved apostle, he would suffer the martyrdom of exile. He would be beaten, and he would be sent to a deserted island to live out the remainder of his days in a cave by himself. They would suffer, but they're standing in the kingdom. Jesus says very clearly, they're standing in the kingdom as a matter of the Father's will, not their mother's requests. Think about this here for a second. What mother wouldn't advocate for special privileges for their kid? It would be class warfare. Every mom duking it out with every other mom to get their kid the front row seats in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Jesus says, the opportunity to sit on my right hand and my left hand, that is the father's prerogative. That is not an opportunity for you to ask for. It is the father's will, not the mother's request. <clears throat> the thing that's interesting, the other disciples, uh, they're no better. They get really ticked off when they hear what the two brothers did. Not because their motives were pure, but because they're coveting the same position. They just didn't even have the guts to ask it. James and John didn't have the guts to ask it themselves. They had mom do the dirty work for them. But the other disciples didn't even have the guts to do that. And so they're upset because they want the same thing. So last week when we talked about the parable of the vineyard, the, the challenge in the parable of the vineyard was this attitude of feeling superior. There were workers who agreed to a wage and they worked all day long. But that same vineyard owner hired people at the last hour and those people that only worked one hour got paid the same amount that the people that worked all day did. And the people who worked all day had this feeling of superiority that they deserved more because they had worked longer. So that's the challenge in last week's parable, this idea of feeling superior. The leadership challenge here is that James and John seek to be superior. You see, there's only two people that can occupy that post on Jesus' immediate right and immediate left. They're not, they don't just have a lousy attitude. They are trying to out-manipulate, out-maneuver all the rest of the disciples so that the two of them get it. Now, one is an attitude of feeling superior, but one is an action that carries out on the attitude to say, this belongs to me. This is my territory. And here's what's so terrible. And this is, I think, part of the reason the world doesn't get the church and quite honestly doesn't like us because we are hypocrites. Here are the disciples craving honor, desiring to be recognized, 
Because being on Jesus' team, being recognized by Jesus, is not enough for them. They need the praise of men. And friends, we have to recognize that when it comes down to what we believe about the gospel, you are either justified by achievement or you are justified by atonement. It is not both. You cannot mix what you do with what Jesus does because either you get recognized or Jesus does. And to the extent that you want to be recognized for your moral goodness, to that extent you are stealing glory from the Lord Jesus Christ. This desire to be recognized. Listen, there is nothing that I bring to my relationship with Christ that is praiseworthy. The only thing I bring is my sin. And I receive His grace to forgive me. Wanting to be recognized is a spiritual prostitution that is not good. This desire to be recognized. I don't know if you've heard the story about the Boy Scout, the minister and the computer programmer. They're flying and they're on this plane when the pilot comes back to them and says, guys, I've got bad news. Uh, Our engines are malfunctioning and we are not going to make it. That's not the bad news, though. The bad news is we've got three parachutes and there's four of us. And I'm married and I've got young kids, so I'm taking one and the pilot jumps out. Well, the computer programmer jumps up and says, listen, I am one of the smartest guys in the world. I'm about to create an invention that everyone will want. I've got too much to live for. And because I'm so smart and I've got so much to give, I'm taking one. So he takes one and he jumps out of the plane. Of course, I'm going to make the minister sound really good here um, because they're the butt of the jokes most of the other time. So the minister, veteran minister, older guy says, I've lived a really fulfilling and fruitful life. And uh, son, I think it's better for you to take take the backpack and go. I've served the Lord. I'm ready to meet him. And the boy scout looks at him and goes, preacher, I don't know what your problem is. The smartest man in the world just jumped out with my backpack. (laughs) (laughs) Be careful about wanting to be recognized for who you are. Because sometimes being recognized for who you are will bite you in the end, won't it? Yeah, he's the smartest guy in the world. And I'm sure he thought that when he pulled on the straps of that backpack. You see, I, I think every single one of us, sin does not manifest itself in the same way in every person. But one of the things we have to recognize is that... Um, Pride, ladies, just run with me here. Actually, you can, you, can, you can run with this. Pride is like a beard. Or ladies, we can say, uh, pride is like hairy legs. Okay, how's that? You didn't expect to come to church hearing that. Oh, gosh, ah, get it out of my mind. Pride is like a, a beard. It will grow just a little bit every single You know what the only solution to that is? To learn spiritually how to shave every day. Listen, you go a couple days without shaving, it's a lot more than a five o'clock shadow. And I don't care if it's the winter and you're wearing pants, ladies, shave those things. Get it done. (laughs) Take care of it. Because when you don't pay... (laughs) Oh, and this is going to be recorded too. I'm sorry, bride. Um... Listen, a five o'clock shadow might be okay. People may not give you a hard time when you obviously haven't shaved for a few days. We'll give you a little bit of slack. But the truth is, if you're not even in the game about how your beard is growing, some of you could be extras on Duck Dynasty and you don't even know it. 
because you're not involved in the business of shaving your pride. And I love this. There is perhaps no man, no man who has succumbed to the disease of pride more than the man who made this speech. Okay, now listen, this is going to date me a little bit, okay? So uh, you got to figure out who made this speech, and all you young people are going to be like, what in the world? I have no idea who this is. <clears throat> man with a very large personality and just a wee bit of pride said this. There seems to be some confusion, and we're going to clear this confusion up on March 8th. We're going to decide once and for all who is king. There's not a man alive who can whoop me. I'm too smart. I'm too pretty. I should be a postage stamp because that's the only way anybody's going to lick me. I am the greatest. I am the king. Who said it? Muhammad Ali before Joe Frazier whooped him. Be careful. Pride goes before the fall. And in the midst of this, Jesus reminds them about the nature of true leadership. True leadership is not about the corner office or your salary or what kind of car you drive. Is it, about, it is about serving others. And he says, don't be leaders like the world. And he, he talks about how the Gentiles dominate and they, they rule over. And Jesus has an antidote for this sickness of leadership. And it's a two-word prescription to battle the peril of pride. And he says it right here in these last couple of verses that we looked at. Look at verse 26. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That's what he says. How do we combat this pride? It is a volitional choice, a willingness to be small so that Jesus can be big. It is a willingness to be a slave to Christ and a servant to our fellow man. And Jesus sets himself up as the ultimate example. He is here not to be served, but to serve others, most ultimately by sacrificing his life. So what did he do for us? He talked about this cup, and he asked James and John, are you able to drink the cup. What did Jesus drink as a metaphor? He drank a cup of wrath with no mercy. None. The full wrath of God so that we who believe in Him and are justified by faith can drink a cup of mercy with no wrath. Listen, we don't believe that even though we sin as Christians, we're far from perfect. Our sins are atoned for by Christ, and we bear no condemnation for that. We drink a cup of mercy with not one drop of wrath in it, because Jesus drank a cup full of wrath with no mercy in it. He fully bore our sins. The one who did nothing wrong was condemned for everything, in order that those who have done everything wrong will be condemned for not one thing. That is the gospel Jesus didn't just suffer and save. He also set an example and he showed us how to live. Because when the Bible talks about being a servant and being a slave, it's not talking about a one-time thing. It's talking about every morning when you wake up, 
you are serving something. You are a slave to something. I think it was Callicles asked Plato, one of the great philosophers, how can a man be happy when he is a slave to anything? And the truth is, while we may not think of ourselves as slaves to an institution or to another person, we are certainly slaves to ourselves, are we not? Aren't you embarrassed at things that you are a slave to that you can't get free from? Your temper, your lust, your anger, whatever it is, you are slaves to it. And so you cannot be, you cannot escape slavery without learning to be a slave to Christ and allowing Him to set you free. Freedom from slavery to self comes from being happy and serving others. And so Jesus both begins and ends this story by saying, hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem, here's what's going to happen. The disciples ask this ridiculous question about privilege and power, and Jesus concludes his sandwich with talking about his suffering and then saying the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And he has the meat of this ridiculous disciple episode between the prediction of his passion and his declaration that he is a serving king. That's not where the story stops. That's not where chapter 20 ends, and I'm grateful for that because he includes just a very short, like, five-verse story that I think is the um, fitting way to kind of tie up everything that he's talking about here. You see, in this last passage, Jesus runs into two blind men, and what we find to kind of prove Jesus' point, these two blind men see and savor Jesus more than his dull disciples. You ever savor something? You know, it's your anniversary or it's a special occasion. It's your birthday in that. First bite of steak, perfectly cooked with all those special herbs and seasonings. Oh, that first bite. Oh, just freeze time. Let me just enjoy this forever. Or you know what the best piece of pizza is. It's that tip, that very first bite of pizza. You know, you just, you, you savor it. You enjoy it. These two blind men see and savor Jesus more than his disciples do. Listen to what the scriptures say in verses 29 through 34. As they, meaning Jesus and his band of disciples, were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. There were two blind men sitting by the road, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd told them to keep quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So Jesus stopped, and he called them, and he said, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they said to him, Open our eyes. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they could see and they followed him. What a great story. When he's talking about the pride of these people who are following him and his disciples, here are these down and out guys who get it better than the disciples have. There is no small degree of irony. These people are calling upon Christ and they're not just calling him Lord and Son of David out of respectfulness. These terms clearly in the book of Matthew are words that only believers use. There is no one who is not a believer who calls Jesus Lord. The Pharisees, the chief priests, and the scribes always refer to him as teacher or as rabbi. 
In Matthew, when the word Lord is used, it's a term of worship. These are people who clearly know who he is, and they are blind, and they're reported as kind of hearing something out there. There's a man passing by. It's Jesus. They hear something, but it becomes very clear from the story that they actually see Jesus better than his own disciples do. They can perceive who he is, and just like James and John's mom, they make a request of Jesus. And we're kind of trained to go, oh, the last time somebody made a request to Jesus, things didn't turn out so good. But what do they ask? The blind men in their request, they're asking of Jesus. They are motivated by Jesus's mercy, not their own merit. They don't deserve it. That's why they're asking for mercy. They're not asking for their rights. They're not asking for what they deserve. They're asking because they're motivated by his mercy, not their merit, not that they deserve it. And so the crowd is really embarrassed because you've got these bums, these homeless guys that are crying out for Jesus. But the more that the crowd shushed them, the more intense their cry for Jesus's mercy became because they knew that Jesus's mercy was far greater than the crowd's judgment upon them. They knew that Jesus' mercy was even greater than their own unworthiness. And they cry for mercy. God, you can do it. It's really kind of strange because like they're asking with this right motivation and then Jesus asks what we think is really kind of a dumb question. So what do you guys want me to do for you? And since we know that most beggars are asking for money, it's not entirely inappropriate for Jesus to ask this question. He's seeing what they want, and what they want is his mercy, not his money, and so the question is not inappropriate. And here's the thing that is just so sweet about this passage. Jesus, as the Son of God, God incarnate in flesh, incredible power, uses that great power to serve others, and he will not use that power to save himself. What humility. To have the ability to completely circumvent the crucifixion. He certainly has the power to do it because without any sweat or labor, these two blind men are healed. And then it says physically, finally, they see and they follow that Jesus, God, will not use his power for selfish means. He will use it, again, to serve others by dying a cruel and torturous death on the cross. This is the storyline through these last few chapters. Children come to Jesus and the disciples shoo them away. And Jesus says, no, 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 let the kids come because they, they know who I am. They trust Next, a rich young man who looks like a really eligible prospect to be on your church planning team. He comes very proud, but he misses the point of who Jesus is. And so the ones that we don't think will get it, get it. And the ones that really seem to be worldly wise don't. And so here, the disciples have been traveling with Jesus all this time, and yet they're too proud to understand exactly what is going on in Jesus' life-giving mission. But blind men have clear perception as to the purpose of what Jesus is all about. So the question for us this morning is, which Jesus have you seen? Which one are you looking for? Are you trusting in him 
to give what he gives? Or are you trusting in him to get what you want? We can't manipulate him. Are we following him because of the mercy that he gives in Christ? Are we following him because he's really lucky to have us on his team? Friend, I don't know how pride manifests itself in your life. But I can tell you this, every single one of you are commissioned to be pride killers because to come to Christ requires humility. And to stay with Christ requires humility because you will not stay of your own accord. You will be tempted to have too high a view of yourself. And you cannot do that without lowering your view of who Christ is. Pray with me, please. Lord, there is so much in life that encourages us to be pompous and proud. Lord, even on this day when we celebrate our graduates, the song that, we, that comes most frequently to mind is Pomp and Circumstance. God, help us to, to revel into glory in the things that you have given to us. And even as we celebrate these wonderful students and their incredible achievements, God, we recognize that they have what they have because you have given them the intellect that they have used. You have given them the athletic ability that they have used. God, the, the main question for us, and not just for these graduates, but for all of us, is have we used what you have given us for our glory or for yours? And if we haven't used it for your glory, we've used it for building up our own pride. And pride is deadly. God, I pray that your spirit will search our hearts and give us the humility of heart to confess our need for you. To say that, indeed, there really is nothing good that dwells in us. Our hearts are lusting machines that have a continual energy supply to lust, covet, and desire things that we shouldn't. So I pray today, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, enable us to be humble of spirit, to seek to exalt you as the gracious and merciful God that you are, and that you help us to glory in making ourselves small so that we can make you big. In Jesus' name we pray.